Good morning. <clears throat> We're going to take a little break from Romans, actually the next two Sundays probably, uh, next Lord's Day, because we looked at Romans chapter um, 4 and the Apostle Paul spent so much time using Abraham as um, a historical example of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, I want to compare Paul to James, since James uses uh, Abraham as an example of how we're uh, not justified by faith alone. So I want to explain that. And today, um, I want to talk about a very uncontroversial topic. <laughs> and uh, of course, that's what's uh, going on in our, in our land regarding COVID, and actually I've been wanting to talk about these things for, um, for a while, and I felt like after what happened this week with um, uh, the Biden administration announcing uh, mandatory either vaccinations or uh, frequent testing for federal employees, and then, and then other entities, government entities, large corporations following suit. And also, by the way, President Biden said that uh, federal employees who don't get vaccinated will not be allowed to, to travel. Um, so there's a lot going on. I just saw a headline this morning, Walmart has announced the re-imposition of mandatory masking in their, in their stores. So in case you thought we were through the woods, nope. And I thought it was a good, good time to remind ourselves of the, the way forward as, as Christians. And uh, let me spend some time laying the groundwork as to um, the, the minefield. I want to make sure we're clear what I'm talking about with this COVID minefield. <clears throat> Prior to last year, uh, the lockdowns from COVID, church attendance in America was already on the decline. It had been on the decline for decades. That's what, that's what this chart up here shows. This is from the Gallup website. And just in March of this year, maybe you saw it in the news, the Gallup organization put out a study and an article that says, Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. That's why this is so interesting. Gallup has been tracking this for 80 years. <clears throat> and they go on. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. So this is very broad, of course. And that um, 47% in 2020 is down from 50% in 2018, and it's down from 70% in 1999. So there's definitely a trend. And then COVID hit, and the Barna Research Group estimated near the end of last year that as many as 20% of churches would permanently close as a result of the pandemic, 20%. Now, I don't know what the actual number 
has turned out to be. That's what the Barna Research Group predicted near the end of last year. And then another study by the same organization, the Barna Research Group, in May of this year, so just a couple of months ago, uh, said that 29% of pastors have given serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry in the last year. And then um, if, to understand why, here's an article from Lifeway Research. It said, throughout 2020, it seemed each week pastors received new information on what their church could or could not do, what was, was not safe, and where they could, could not go. The speed of these changes and the lack of reliable information at times made the already stressful job of being a pastor even more demoralizing. By July of 2020, pastors' greatest pain point had become maintaining unity within their church. As their church navigated safety concerns, members of their congregation voiced different opinions loudly, the, the article says. And how long will this new environment last? Well, in February of this year, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal to which I subscribe that said, the ease with which the coronavirus spreads, the emergence of new strains like the Delta variant, there's also the Lambda, I think the Lambda variant, the Gamma variant, there's all kinds of variants. The emergence of new strains and poor access to vaccines in large parts of the world mean COVID-19 could shift from a pandemic disease to an endemic one, implying lasting modifications to personal and societal behavior, epidemiologists say. We need to accept that our lives are not going to be the same, said Thomas Frieden, former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I don't think the world has really absorbed the fact that these are long-term changes. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not right, but that's the minefield that I'm talking about. And so the question is, how do we navigate through this minefield? And uh, you can already tell by looking at your bulletin, you know the direction we're going to go. Uh, we could take the direction of people on the right side of the, no, over here, right side of the political aisle and just protest everything and make it known to the world that we're anti-mask, anti-vaccine, we think that COVID is a hoax or whatever. Or we could take the stance of the, uh, the left side of the political aisle spectrum and basically we could demand, command, require masks, we could ask everyone's uh, vaccination card before they come in, or we can be like a lot of churches and just shut our doors. Uh, there's a lot of churches in America that, that uh, not only um, closed, as in they disbanded, but they just, they've never opened their doors. I, I believe that's the case with St. Michael's. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But anyway, the point being 
there, there are ways in which the people in the world, in our culture, approach this topic, and that's not the way we're, we're approaching it. I just want you to know that. In fact, I'm probably going to offend everyone. I'm not going to make anyone happy completely by, by what I say, but I really think this needs to be said. And, and I think that this is, this is the approach that we need to map out for the way ahead because it's, it's, it's just here. I believe that it's going, this kind of thing is, is here for a long time. So that's the minefield. How do, we, how do we get through it? These are stepping stones. This is not how-to. This is stepping stones. Uh, things, principles that we really need to hang our hat on, we really need to emphasize, we really need to embrace as biblical truth. And the first one is the priority of the gospel. Oh, that's the, that's the road ahead, empty churches. All right. Um, the priority of the gospel. There's a little brochure that our church has put together uh, about our church, and it has our core values. And I think that like number two is the centrality of the gospel of grace. And we say the gospel, good news, about the person and work of Jesus Christ is the main point of the Bible. It is the main message that God has given the church. Therefore, as a church, we will center up on the gospel as the only message of salvation, the key to the Christian life, and the foundation of Christian unity. The, the gospel of grace is the foundation of Christian unity, we say. And we say that because the Bible says that. The Apostle Paul said about his own ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 through 23, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's a very important statement from the Apostle Paul. He, he knew what to embrace and to tenaciously hold on to, and he knew what to let go. He, he knew the difference between things that are indifferent and things that are not indifferent. Uh, there's a Greek word for that. It's, it's the word adiaphora, and it literally means indifferent things, neither good nor bad. And Paul was willing to be flexible when it came to adiaphora for the sake of the gospel. And by the way, there are things that do contradict the gospel that we can't be flexible about. There are things that are non-negotiable. There there, there's such a thing in the New Testament as a false gospel. There are peddlers of false Christs. There's bad theology. There is immorality. The, the Apostle Paul, who says, I became all things to all people, 
he gave us those famous lists in Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in these lists, he says, don't be deceived. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is coming upon people who practice these things. There are such things as prohibited moral practices that Christians cannot condone. And we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about things that the Bible does not specifically name or condemn as sinful, things that we can take or leave. Look with me in Galatians chapter 2. Let me show you how this plays out and why it's so important. In, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, this is Paul's account of a confrontation that occurred between him and Peter, the apostle Peter, in Antioch. So Paul writes about it. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What did Peter do? Was Peter preaching false doctrine? Was he getting drunk? And Paul was privy to that? Was he preaching a false gospel? No. Paul tells us what Peter did. For before certain men came from James, so these are Judaizers, uh, professing Christians who were saying that Gentiles had to be circumcised and come under the full yoke of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And James, the brother of the Lord, who wrote the epistle that bears his name in the New Testament, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he did not officially send these guys. That's not what James was teaching. But they, they, they came supposedly under the guise of the blessing from James. So these men came to the church in Antioch, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles before these Judaizers came. So he was eating with the Gentiles, meaning table fellowship, eating a non-kosher diet with Gentile believers. But when these Judaizers came into the church in Antioch, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So before these guys came, no problem. Peter's all things to all men. Then these Judaizers come, and then it's not just that Peter changed his diet, but he actually withdrew himself from distinctively Christian fellowship with other believers. He knew these people were believers, these Gentile believers that he was eating with. He knew that they were believers. That's why he was eating with them. But then he treated them like they weren't believers. And then Paul goes on, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter wasn't alone. And by the way, that's why Paul needed to call out 
um, that's why Paul needed to call out Peter publicly because Peter's uh, hypocrisy affected Barnabas and others. So Peter needed to be called out. And Paul says, when I saw that their, con uh, when I saw that their conduct, verse 14, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. We're going to come back to that. I said to Paul, uh, Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The reason why this was so important wasn't just because of peace and unity in the church, wasn't just because Gentile believers were offended. It's because, in the words of Paul, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Do you see that? He had changed the standard, Peter did. He had changed the standard by which he would have fellowship with believers. And because he was a leader, he was an apostle in the church, that basically had the implication that God had changed the standard by which sinners were welcomed into his fellowship. They were deciding, in effect, they were deciding who they would be in fellowship with, who they would enjoy communion with, who they would treat as brothers and sisters in the Lord on some standard other than the gospel. And that's why Peter got called out by Paul, and that's why Paul thought, you know what, this is worth the risk. And so I know that there are differences between what happened in Antioch and what's happening today, but let me just say, uh, there are people in our church who feel very strongly about all of the various anti-COVID measures, and there are people in our church who feel just as strongly against those very things. And, um, I mean, the obvious thing is masking. That might be coming back to our community. Apparently, it's already back in Walmart. And it's so visible, you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. At least with, with table fellowship, it's only when you eat. And it's only when you eat together as as a church, but masking, it's so obvious and visible. And what I'm saying, and what I think the Apostle Paul is saying, what I think God wants us to believe and practice is, when we see each other, and let's say I'm not wearing a mask, and my brother is wearing a mask, and he's my brother. I know he's my brother. We have fellowship. We talk about the Lord. I accept him as a fellow member in our church. I believe that he's been reconciled to God on the basis of the imputed righteousness of God and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for his sake. God would have me look at this brother, and I may still think all kinds of of things in my, thought, in my mind. I may think, wow, that mask really doesn't do hardly anything at all. 
what do you think you're really doing? Do you really think that you're safe? Blah, 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 blah. And don't you, don't you understand that the Marxists in our country are trying to use this as an instrument of dividing us? I could still think all that. That's okay. But I must embrace that brother as a brother in the Lord on the basis of faith in Christ. And, and conversely, my brother may look at me and he may think of me. Don't you, you're, you're a super spreader, Pastor Lynn. Don't you understand that? How many people have you... Inf- Don't you believe in science? Just be led by the science. Blah, blah, blah. You can still think all of that in, in your head about the specifics of masking, but what you must not do is think of me any less as a brother in the Lord because I'm not wearing a mask. Because in the Bible, that kind of thing does not affect your salvation. That kind of thing, if you practice it or don't practice it, it doesn't mark you out as a habitual sinner. There's plenty of mask wearers and plenty of mask avoiders who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, who are going to heaven, and therefore the mask or not wearing a mask neither commends you to God or doesn't commend you to God. It's indifferent. And the way that we can hold together and not split up so that we have one Reformed church in Ridgecrest that masks and another Reformed church in Ridgecrest that doesn't mask the, the, the way that we can avoid that is by putting masking in its place and putting the gospel in its place. Right? Get it? Say amen. amen. Thank you. Good. I feel better. And do you see, by the way, that it's not... I, I'm using the example of masking because it's so obvious. Uh, but there's so many things. Uh, in our former church... Um, we had, con- we had uh, dealings with a woman who was just convinced that, that all manner of homeopathy and natural remedy, it was all witchcraft because it's associated with witchcraft. And so, so she digs in and she's, got, she's figured out all the origins of this and that. And so if you take echinacea, you're practicing witchcraft. And so Pastor Ella and I, we met with her and her husband. We go through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and uh, chapter 10 about meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, an idol is nothing. The, the, the meat is nothing. Doesn't do anything to your soul whatsoever. And she just could not get that. And they left the church over that kind of thing. There's lots of issues like that that divide Americans and divide Christians and divide Uh, churches and brothers and sisters it ought not to be it ought not to be the the gospel needs to be the main thing and if it's not the main thing perhaps it's really nothing if you think about it so the priority of the gospel all right liberty of conscience liberty of conscience look in first corinthians chapter 8 Notice in verse 8, by the way, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
the context is meat sacrificed to idols. And you could argue, well, the food's not healthy for you. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about what God cares about. God cares about the heart. And what you eat for food does not commend you to God. And your opinion about COVID measures, I submit to you, does not commend you to God. Your opinion one way or another. It might be foolish. You, you, you might be thinking things that are leading to the destruction of America as we know it. That could very well be true, but doesn't commend us to God. But what I was directing your attention to is verses 12 and 13. And Paul is talking about the importance of conscience. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So there's this reality of our conscience. God's given us a conscience. And in the, especially the new covenant, the, a big difference between the old covenant and the new is that there's a lot more details in terms of a moral code in the old covenant. Paul in Galatians compared it to the ABCs. In, under the new covenant, there's not as many details. The Bible is not this exhaustive rule list. There's the Ten Commandments, that is stamped upon our heart. There's the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And there's a lot of freedom in between that. And God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower and inform our consciences. And there's a lot of applications of that. Um, I'll, I'll come out of the closet and say that I occasionally enjoy adult beverages. I had a small glass of wine last night. Some of you don't. Some of you have a matter of conscience about that. So this passage tells me, if I know that you're stumbled by that, I should not go up to you and say, hey, cheers, brother. Have a glass of wine with me. Don't you know it's okay to drink wine? Jesus drank wine. Come on, get with it. That's a violation of what Paul is saying here. It's a matter of the conscience. My conscience is clear regarding drinking wine. Yours is not. The love of the gospel says that's okay. I can love you and embrace you. You can love me and embrace me if we have different conclusions in our consciences regarding wine and all kinds of other things. Romans chapter 14. Verses 1 through 5. Verses 14, 1 through 5. As for the one who is weak in faith, by the way, the one who is weak in faith in the context is the one who thinks he can only eat vegetables. He's, his conscience is bound by the dietary regulations in the word of God. Maybe he thinks he can't get hold of any meat anywhere that's not been sacrificed to idols, so he's just going to be a vegetarian. 
Paul calls that one someone who's weak. Someone who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But listen to this. But not to quarrel over opinions. So what Paul is after there is, don't have your fellowship meal table back there and you know that brother, sister, so-and-so is a vegetarian. So you say, hey, sister, so-and-so, come over here and, and join us. Are you having a good day? Hope everything's well. Why are you a vegetarian? Here, have some prime rib. Blah, 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 blah. Paul says, don't do that. Welcome this, this brother in the Lord. Who cares what they eat? Who cares? One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats, listen to this word, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. This is key, for God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. And we know from the rest of the book of Romans that God has welcomed that brother through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from his works. And so don't abstain, I'm sorry, don't despise that brother or sister because that person abstains from what you don't abstain from or indulges in what you abstain from. Don't despise, don't judge. And you know that is what's in our, that's our tendency. That is our tendency. It's part of our sinful nature to, to despise and judge people who reach different conclusions than, than we do. And here's the reason why. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5 at the end, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? And then finally, end of verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this is why we don't require masks in our church. En enough runtime has gone by, and we're going to talk more about this. We're not convinced that there, there's a clear and present danger to human life represented by not wearing a mask that is mitigated substantially, dramatically, by wearing a mask. Amen. Uh, that's just a, an opinion that the church officers have. It's not religious. It's, <laughs> we think it is based on the science. But listen to what the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 says on this subject of liberty of conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free 
from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. Requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. That's what it means to be reformed. That's what it means to be a Baptist. That's what it used to mean to be American, frankly. And so we're not going to require, we haven't, we're not going to require masks. We're not going to make people who do wear masks feel funny or outcast. We, we still have the balcony up there uh, for people who have a need to social, socially distance, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I believe that I can't with a good conscience tell people in church we're going to talk about why that's significant, in church to wear or not wear a mask or to require that they show their vaccination card or whatever before coming to church. There is a Christian reality that Jesus died for called liberty of conscience. And it's very important. All right. Number three, the importance of the church gathering face-to-face. The importance of the church gathering face-to-face. Obviously, there's history now. Uh, For about 100 days, our church closed its doors, except to those immediately involved in the streaming service. Uh, If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have done it that way, just so you know. But hindsight's 20-20. We were shut down for 100 days, we came back, May, the first Sunday was May 21st, met a few, a few Sundays, we did require masking, we, at least we asked, we strongly urged or recommended or whatever we said. And then at the behest of the governor, of Governor Newsom, then we all moved outside, remember that, for a, a lot of the summer. And then as time went on, it just dawned on us, what are we doing and why? Going to come back to that. But the point of the matter is that the reason why Christians in general, like us, don't just shut our doors and go to streaming 100% is because it's part of our faith. It's what the Bible, which is the word of God, requires of us that Christians should regularly, in fact, weekly on the Lord's Day, meet face to face. That's why the church is called the house of God and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And these things signify God's special presence with his gathered people. That's a biblical thing. God's with us all the time but he is with us in a special way when the church is gathered together as the church. That's why Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew chapter 18. By the way, that's not just for any reason, but in Matthew chapter 18, the subject was church discipline. So the idea is from Jesus, when the church is gathered together as the church, 
to do what I, the Lord of the church, command you to do, I am with you. I am with you, no matter what the size, even two or three. And in addition to that, as church members, we're called to be kindly affectionate to one another, to give each other a holy kiss, to have face-to-face fellowship. And so there may be reasons, there, there may be reasons why church needs to be temporarily foregone, but that cannot be a long-term solution. And there's another reason, our sanctification. If you look in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The reality is, as believers, we need each other, We need the church. It's true that going to church doesn't save you, but for believers, being involved in church faithfully does sanctify you. That's word of God. That's what the Bible says. Christian author and speaker Nancy Lay DeMoss put it this way, being disconnected from the local church for whatever reason is a dangerous way to live. Not only do these lone rangers miss out on the blessings of functioning within the context of the body of Christ, but like lone sheep away from the safety of the flock and the watchful care of the shepherd, they are vulnerable to predators of every sort. And so as we continue to walk through this minefield filled with dangers, we're always going to have in our minds the importance of the church gathering face-to-face. And when that's threatened, when that's threatened, we'll look at the information presented to us, but our default is going to be, you know what, we, the church needs to be together face-to-face. Number four, the reality of risk in a fallen world. The reality of risk in a fallen world. I believe that the Westminster Larger Catechism is correct when it sums up the the requirements, the positive requirements of the Sixth Commandment, which says you shall not murder. That's a negative prohibition, you shall not murder. But they rightly observe that there are positive requirements You shall not murder, but that implies, and they go on to enumerate in the Westminster Larger Catechism, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others. And then then it goes on. But there's a limit. 
We can't eliminate death. We can't eliminate all risk. We live in a fallen world. And in fact, for Christians, our faithfulness to Christ is measured in part by our willingness to prioritize our risk-taking to benefit Christ's kingdom. And Paul himself is an example of that. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 24 through 29. Paul writes about his own experience as an apostle. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Number one, obviously, the Apostle Paul faced danger, right? And he did it for the Lord, and he did it, in his own words, for the churches. What if, what if Paul waited to obey Jesus until the probability of serious sickness and death dropped down below 99.8% or pick your number? Do you get my point? Oh, it's dangerous out there. It's risky out there. I might get hurt. I might get killed. Well, what part of in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, do you not understand? Death, risk, sickness, persecution, illness, rejection, it's all part of life in a fallen world. That doesn't mean that we should be reckless, doesn't mean that we should careless, we should count the cost. But does Jesus not command us to... Um, lay down our lives for him, him who laid down his life for us. Sometimes I think that Americans expect a perfectly safety, safe life, a life free of danger and, and risk, and they demand the government give that to them. I believe that's part of the modern American culture and that's one thing, but it's another thing if Christians basically think the same thing. I'm not going to obey the Lord unless it's risk-free. Well, we live in a fallen world, and risk of all sorts 
It's part of reality in this fallen world. It's part of the reality of serving King Jesus in a fallen world. All right, Caesar and the church. Caesar and the church. Look in Matthew chapter 22. There are books, essays, blog posts, videos on every one of these subjects. We're going through them quickly. Matthew chapter 22. Well, I'll look at the, I'll read you the whole thing. So starting back in verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus and his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion. <laughs> That's what, that's what their thought of Jesus was. You don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, they left him and went away. It's actually a really profound statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Turns out that God in the Bible has set up three spheres of government in the world. The Civil government, of which Caesar, in this case, was the head, the family, and the church. And they're distinct. They're all by the appointment of God and under the rule of God, but they're distinct. And Jesus is recognizing that Caesar has legitimate authority from God and legitimate rights as a ruler and his followers should honor Caesar. And he also says, give to God the things that are God's. So we have a couple of challenges when it comes to this. Number one, who exactly is Caesar to us? And in our um, representative constitutional republic, we don't have a Caesar. There's the Constitution. There is Congress, both the House of Representatives and the Senate. There's the judiciary. There's the president. And there's the people. And uh, we all have a role to play as Caesar. In other words, the power of the government is shared in our kind of constitutional democratic republic. There's not just a Caesar. And I believe, I'm persuaded, that it's not Christians' responsibility to blindly follow the edicts of Caesar no matter what they are. We, we should weigh them. We should think about them. We should prayerfully consider them. We, we should not 
flippantly or carelessly disobey. It better be for conscience sake. But sometimes we need to push back. That's the history of our country. That's where the civil rights movement came from in the days of Martin Luther King in the 1950s and 60s. There were unjust laws in the South that, that Ms. Parks broke and other civil rights activists and leaders broke for conscience sake that brought those unjust laws into the public consciousness and led to the changing of those laws. Praise God. That's called civil disobedience. And I am thankful that Grace Community Church in Los Angeles opened her doors and uh, endured the governing authorities in Los Angeles to take them to court and sue them and threaten them and fine them and all these things. I'm thankful to every church that did that um, when it was against the, it's, it was never against the law, that's a thing. It was against the edicts of whatever uh, health official um, was, was ruling, so-called, in that particular jurisdiction. But what happened was, because they pushed back and violated those edicts, then it, those uh, cases got adjudicated through the court system, and then the Supreme Court said, that's not constitutional. And honestly, I believe that's the difference between us and Canada. That's why in Canada, churches got, I mean, way sh hard shut down. Pastors got arrested, put in jail. It, it's because of our system, our Supreme Court justices, frankly, and those churches were willing to stand up. The Supreme Court uh, is not sitting there on their benches observing what Congress is doing and the Los Angeles Health Department. They're not sitting there surveying that, and, and they go, oh, wow, look at that, Judge Roberts. That's unconstitutional. They can't do that. The way our constitutional democracy works is if there's an unjust law, someone's got to break it, someone's got to get prosecuted for it, uh, and then it has to go through the court system. That's just how it is. So there is no Caesar. We have a constitution, and we have a representative republic. And the thing is, it, I believe it is in the heart of every Caesar, every civil magistrate, every human ruler to usurp God's authority, to take things too far. In the first century, the early church had to deal with emperor Domitian, he sent out a decree that all in the empire should worship him as God the Lord. Residents of the empire were ordered to come to the public square, burn a pinch of incense, and speak the words, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Christians would not, could not do that. And many of them suffered. And I believe that there's, there's an emperor domitian in the sinful heart of every human ruler. 
They want to be worshipped as God. There's that temptation. They want to overstep their bounds. Do you know that's where America came from? In the 16th and 17th centuries, 18th century as well, there were English separatists, dissenters, nonconformists, who separated from the Church of England over the, the Book of Common Prayer and the other uh, things that took place within the church that the king was ordering. And they left the church. They separated themselves, not because the things themselves that the king was ordering were wrong, but the nonconformists were persuaded in their consciences the king has no place within the church. God has not given the king, the civil magistrate, the authority to regulate what happens in the worship of the church. And because of that, many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord in those centuries died. And a bunch of them came here and founded our country and gave us the spirit of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. All right, number six. These last two are going to be really fast. The real war. The real war. We need to see what's really going on. What's really going on far, far transcends COVID. It, it even far, far transcends Marxism versus liberty in America, although I do believe that's involved. But it transcends that. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is what's going on. That's the real war. How can I say it more plainly? The devil will use this leash that God has given him in order to shut the mouths of God's servants, turn up the heat of persecution on believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and make it as hard as possible to follow the Lord. And he's going to tempt as many professing Christians as he can to turn away from the faith because Satan has a long track record. He knows it works. That's what's really going on. Satan wants Christians, he wants churches closed. And Satan wants Christians to bite and devour one another. All right, and then finally, the end game. The end game. We have the advantage, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is we know how this story ends. Doesn't mean that we're, gonna, we're not going to get hurt trying to navigate our way through this minefield. Doesn't mean we're not going to 
take some casualties, some shrapnel, but we do know who wins at the end. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John gives us this glorious vision. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's how it ends. And friend, if you're not a Christian today, that is what we invite you to. We invite you to say with your mouth, from your heart, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ Turn from your sins, put your trust in him, and be saved today and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to be faithful to you in a dangerous world, a world that is um, against you and seems to be turning more and more against you and your kingdom and your ways. Would you help us to take these principles from your word to heart and may we glorify Jesus as um, by your grace, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the light from your word, we navigate this minefield that is before us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.